The following teaching is possible thanks to the friends and partners of Spirit and Truth Fellowship International. Well, God bless you and greetings. This month I want to teach on part of God's greatest and first commandment, the Shema, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. Now, the Shema, the, the statement, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone, is a statement about relationship. And I want to say that again because a lot of people don't get that. But the Shema is a statement about relationship, and it tells us something about God that helps us define our relationship with Him. Now, to understand the Shema, we're going to look at three aspects. We're going to look at what it's not saying, what it is saying, and how do we apply it in our lives. And I will say up front that we'll spend most of the time on what it is not saying and what it is saying. Because once we understand that, then it becomes easy to understand how to apply it. And I'm going to say right up front, see, I'm teaching this teaching based on my understanding as a biblical Unitarian. I am not a Trinitarian. I believe that the Father alone is God, that Jesus Christ is not God, and he's not part of a Trinity. Now, Spirit and Truth Fellowship has a lot on this subject, but I'm going to assert that if you want to understand the Shema and its implications through uh, not only Jewish history, but Christian history, then you've got to know what Deuteronomy 6.4 is not saying and what it is saying. So the first thing in what it's not saying is the Shema is not saying God is a compound unity. Listen again. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God Yahweh alone. And I'm going to be defending that translation in this teaching. Um, a lot of times, and this, this is really too bad, but a lot of times what happens is we biblical Unitarians spend so much time trying to think about or explain or, you know, what a verse is not saying that we don't spend enough time on what it is saying. And so I'm going to spend time on what the verse is not saying, just so we understand it. But then, more importantly, I want to move on to what is Deuteronomy 6 for telling us? Why was it the heartbeat of Israel? Why is it repeated uh, weekly in the Jewish prayer services? God so badly wants to be our God, and he alone wants to be our God alone. He doesn't want to share his glory with other gods. Now, the reason the Shema has been misunderstood, or maybe, yeah, not fully understood, is the translation has, the, the, the common translations on the market don't really communicate the truth that a Jew would be, and I, by that I mean an Israelite, somebody like when Moses wrote this, uh, they would have understood it differently. So, for example, the King James Version of Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. What, what does that mean, the Lord our God is one Lord? What would that have meant to an ancient Israelite? Or, for example, here's the English Standard Version, the ESV, much more modern. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But here again, what would it have meant to an ancient Israelite to say, the Lord our God, the Lord is one? Neither the Jews nor the Greeks had a compound unity. See, Trinitarians want to say, well, that's referring to the, the compound unity in God. Well, if it is, neither the Jews nor the Greeks understood that because they didn't have any compound unity in their gods or, in fact, in the gods around them. The Trinitarian concept of a, a triune God, a compound unity in God, where the gods are, as they're defined in Trinitarian doctrine, the persons in the Godhead were all God, is so different than what had existed before it 
that the Trinitarians had to invent vocabulary that had never existed before or phrases that had never existed before to explain it. Now, that's an important point, and I, I want to make it again because I think it gets lost because we Christians aren't really taught about Christian history. See, it's easy to say that, say, the ESV translation, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's easy to roll off your tongue and say, Oh, that refers to the compound unity in God. But this was written 1,400 years before Christ. And the Jews, it wasn't just the Jews that didn't have a compound unity in God. Nobody had a compound unity in God. The concept was would did not really even exist in the ancient Near East. And so when the Trinitarians had to explain what they meant by the Trinity, they had to invent words and phrases that had never existed before. So, for example, the Greek word homoousios, which means of one substance, referring to how can these three, quote, persons be one? Oh, well, they're homoousios. Well, we don't know, so we'll invent a word. Homoousios, what's that mean? It means of one substance. Oh, so the invented word explains how the, the, the persons of the Trinity can be one. But you have to understand, what if you lived before that word was invented, you see, and what, so what I'm getting at here is we're going to look for a different understanding, a different meaning in Deuteronomy 6.4. Same thing with the phrase eternally begotten. Talk about the son. Well, if he's the son, then he had a father. If he had a father and you have a son, then he was born, then he had a beginning. Oh, no, he was eternally begotten. That phrase was invented. Um, and also, if Jesus is going to be God and man, with both natures dwelling in one person, they've got to communicate. Well, the, the language didn't exist. What, the, there wasn't before. The, you, you had people who were born of God who had character. Like, for example, Hercules was a born of a human mother and a God father, and he had characteristics of both, but he didn't have a dual nature. And so the phrase communicatio idiomatum, or what we would call communications of the properties, was invented. So the when we when we want to go and read the Old Testament and read the Hebrew text and understand what God is saying, then we have to understand what they would what the ancients would have understood because God's trying to communicate about himself. I mean, think about it. The Old Testament. What, what was the Old Testament about? It was given by God to the Jews so they could know and obey him. <laughs> and, and never in now, gosh, more than the 3,500 years since the Shema was written, have the Jews understood it to refer to a compound unity in God. Quite the opposite. They took it to mean what it says. There's one God, and they fought polytheism throughout their history. So if the Shema you know, was God's attempt to, to reveal a compound unity in God, it, well, that was an epic failure. It makes a whole lot more sense to say that God intended to, to mean what the Jews say it mean. And by the way, uh, the Jews didn't take the Shema as their primary statement of monotheism because many other verses made this point. And that's important for us to realize. I'll be covering some of those verses shortly. But what we, we need to understand is, what is the Shema saying? Well, here's the new American Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And I believe that's exactly the essence of what is going on. By the way, the New American Bible translates Mark 12, 9, where Jesus quotes the Shema in the same way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. Now, we New Testament people <laughs> get a really good look at the Shema and how it was understood and the way it was to be, to be read and believed. Uh, we get a really good look at that because Jesus Christ quoted it and he talked about it. And this shows up in Mark chapter 12. And so in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28, Jesus is having a discussion with one of the experts in the law. 
So Mark 12, 28 says, oh, and before I read this, I want to say we're going to read this record here between verses 28 to 34. So just hang in with me as we read this biblical account, and then we'll go back and analyze it a little more in depth. So Mark 12, 28, and one of the experts in the law came and heard them disputing together and recognized that he, that's Jesus, had answered them well and asked him, What commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. And so you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the expert in the law said to him, Well said, teacher, you've spoken truth, that he is one, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself, is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34, And when Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any questions. Now, this record that I just read is in Mark and in Matthew, and they both have little pieces of different details. But one thing this conversation between Jesus and the expert in the law shows us is that the Shema is not about any compound unity or God or about the Trinity, but it is about what I said in the beginning. It's about a relationship. And that's really important. I mean, what a take home from understanding Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. See, first of all, we should know. Now, the Pharisees question. He came up and he questioned. By the way, we learned from Matthew that what the, the Pharisee, this expert in the law, what he originally started to do was trap Jesus with this question. Uh, because, of course, they had their ideas about, you know, what was important in the law, et cetera, et cetera. And so he asked the question, what commandment is the first of all? But this was a question that the Jews had hotly debated among themselves for century. And actually, it's not a bad question to, to ask ourselves and to settle in our hearts. You've got, you know, the whole Old Testament law. What's the most important thing in it? I mean, it's huge. I can see why the Jews debated over this and argued over this. What's the most important thing? And, you know, so they did. And and so, interestingly enough, even though this Pharisee asked Jesus the question, according to Matthew, to trap him, it was still an honest and genuine question. And the Pharisee's response to Jesus's answer, because, you know, he asked him the question, Jesus answered, the first is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. He would have been reading, he would have been quoting right out of the Hebrew text. Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. The the very fact that the he answered that way and then the Pharisee responded showed that the this Pharisee grasped what Jesus was saying. Because what uh, verse 32, what did the what did the Pharisee say? He said, Well said, teacher. So the Pharisee was like, Wow. That's really cool. And then the Pharisee took the Shema and went even further, because if you look when he says, you've spoken truth that he is one and there is no other, and to love him with all the heart, etc., etc., is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, you know, what the, what he's doing is he's connecting the Shema, Deuteronomy 4, 6, with other parts of the law, and that's fabulous. And of course, we know the Pharisee didn't have any concept of the compound unity in God. In fact, the Pharisee would have taken his understanding of Deuteronomy 6.4 and, and its context right out of the law of Moses and out of the understanding and interpretation that the Jews had at the time of Christ. So then in light of that, Jesus's response is really important to us. First, and I think we need to pay attention to this, that Jesus said the first commandment was, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone, and you are to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So a lot of times we get confused because we read the Ten Commandments, and I'll be talking about this in just a little bit, but we read the Ten Commandments and we think, oh, the first commandment. And it's interesting that Jesus said, he didn't, Jesus did not say the first commandment is the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said that the first commandment was Deuteronomy 6, 4, which parallels Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, the first commandment of the Ten but it's not the same, and that's for uh, that's an interesting thing. We'll be talking about that in a minute. And then Christ went on to say, the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't come out of the Ten Commandments at all. That comes out of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And you can see, okay, here's God speaking the Ten Commandments from the mountain, and you can see why people get so focused on the Ten Commandments, and then we can see why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious people would argue about which is the most important commandment. And Jesus just kind of cuts through the smoke and just says, you want to know the first and great commandment? It's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. You want to know the, 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 most, uh, the second greatest commandment? It's Leviticus 19, 18. And the, and the scribe, or the expert in the law, man, that just hit his heart. And he was like, you have spoken well. That's really good stuff. And of course, <laughs> you and I know it is really good stuff. Absolutely. And so Jesus told us what is the first commandment in the law, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And it's, and I'm going to cover this more in detail later, but it's because there's Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone, that I can love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. If there's more than one God, I've got to divide my appreciation, my worship, my attention. And that is, in fact, what happens in much of the Christian world. Like I say, I'll be talking about that more later. And then Jesus, of course, added, and I love this because the expert in the law just said, what's the first commandment? Now, Jesus gave the first and the second. The Pharisee hadn't asked for the second commandment. So then we need to ask ourselves, and this is where we learn from Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus, when the Pharisee asked Christ that first question, what's the great commandment of the law? That was to initially to trap Jesus, but to answer also a question that he had personally had. But then we know that he had other needs. Jesus is not just a, I'm, I'm, I'm here to answer your question machine. You know, he's not put in a quarter and ask a question and get out an answer. You know, Jesus is going for the hearts of people. Now, here's a Pharisee. What does the word Pharisee mean? It comes from Perez. It comes from separate. You know, the Pharisees were like, I'm separate. You know, I'm aloof. I hold myself separate from other people. You know, the other people are the rabble. They're the unclean, you know, yada, yada. And I'm a Pharisee. I'm a separated one. And that's never the right attitude to have. We're never to have the attitude that we're better than other people, separated from other people or whatever. No, the, the, the revelation of the Bible is consider others better than yourself. And Christ knew that. And yet he's talking to this Pharisee. The Pharisees asked him, you know, what's the first and great commandment? Okay, it's nice to know that. But Christ then is going to go right for the heart. And he's going to say, by the way, as long as we're talking about this, we're going to talk about the second commandment, too, because it's love your neighbor as yourself. And the Pharisee, I love the, the Pharisee said, wow, you know, you, you've spoken well. So the Pharisee, there was a crack there in the armor. That's great. And then Jesus recognized the humility in the heart of that particular Pharisee. And he said, you know, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Beautiful interaction there in Mark chapter 12. And we learn so much from it. And one of the things that we learn, you know, is as the Pharisee asked, what's the first and great commandment? And this Christ answered, and then Christ ends up by saying, you're not far from the kingdom of God. There was, in that whole context, and particularly in the mind of the Pharisee, the expert in the law, there was no understanding of a trinity or any kind of compound unity. And so I'm going to assert that that's because there is none, that that's not a, a true doctrine. 
because it seems to me that if you had a Pharisee with a humble heart and he was asking about the truth of God and Christ had an opportunity to tell him that Christ at that point would have said, by the way, kind of like Ananias and Sapphira did for Apollos in Corinth when they took him aside and taught him the way of God more perfectly, that Jesus Christ would have said, wow, man, you're you're really on your way, but let me talk to you about the Trinity and who I am and the compound unity in God, things that you need to understand. He, Christ didn't say any of that. Why not? I'm going to assert because that isn't a true doctrine, that what the the Old Testament says and makes so plain, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. That Yahweh alone is God in John in John 17, 3, when Jesus Christ prayed, and he's on his knees, he's praying to his Father, and he prays that they may know you, the only true God. I believe that's what the truth was. That was certainly in Jesus' heart, and it's reflected here in Mark chapter 12. By the way, the Greek supports the translation the, the Lord our God is Lord alone. If you look at the word that normally gets translated one in many translations, the, the Greek word is haste. For you guys that are into concordances and lexicons and looking it up, uh, it's Strong's number 1520. Uh, it can mean one or alone, just like the Hebrew word echad can mean one or alone. We'll be talking about that uh, later. And you can look up, say, for example, in the BDAG Greek-English lexicon, they they mark uh, other verses where haste is used in the sense of alone, such as Mark 2, 7, 10, 18, 12, 29, Matthew 23, 10. And they lift, list some more, too. So what do we see? We see that Jesus is going to quote the Old Testament Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. By the way, there are some uh, English Bibles that translate it that way or very close to that way. The Geneva Bible of 1599, Hear, Israel, the Lord our God is the only Lord. Uh, The New American Bible, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. The New Jerusalem Bible, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God is the one only Lord. The New English Bible, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the only Lord. So there are English translations that recognize that use of haste in Mark 12, 29. Now, when we read Mark 12, 29, we realize Jesus would have been quoting the Old Testament. And the Old Testament that he would have been quoting was Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 6, 5. And the Shema is in Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad. And the word Echad is the word that gets normally translated one. But it really shouldn't be translated one in Deuteronomy 6.4. And there are a number of versions that translate with the word alone. For example, the New American Bible, the New Living, uh, the New Living Testament, the New Revised Standard Version, the Tanakh, the JPS. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The Geneva Bible of 1599, we've already talked about in Mark. In, De- in Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God is Lord only. And other English versions that translate the word echad alone in Deuteronomy 6.4. Now, it's very important that we understand that because there's a Trinitarian assertion made by some Trinitarians, not all, that the Hebrew word echad, uh, as it's used in Deuteronomy 6.4 and other verses, indicates a compound unity. And that's simply not true. Anthony Buzzard wrote very lucidly on this. And so I'm just going to go ahead and quote his book. This is Anthony Buzzard's book, The Doctrine of the Trinity. And Buzzard writes, it's untrue to say that the Hebrew word akkad, one, in Deuteronomy 6.4, points to a compound unity. A recent defense of the Trinity argues that when one modifies a collective noun like bunch or herd, Plurality is implied in Echad. The argument is fallacious. The sense of plurality is derived from the collective noun, heard, etc., not from the word one. Echad in Hebrew is the numeral one. 
Abraham was one, Echad, I, uh, and then he goes on to other examples of, of one. And if you just grab a Hebrew lexicon and look up the Hebrew word Echad, then here are the major definitions that you find. One in number, that's the primary meaning. The first in a series, one in the sense of the same or alone, one in the sense of each or a certain one, and one in the sense of unique. And that becomes very important because the Jews understood when God, when God says, I am your God, I alone, they caught that. God doesn't want any other gods. He alone wants to be God. So Deuteronomy 6.4, is, it is a statement about monotheism, but that's not its primary emphasis. Uh, monotheism, the existence of only one God, was set forth in a number of Old Testament verses. For example, um, gosh, you know, Deuteronomy 6.4 is obviously in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 4.35, Yahweh is God, besides him there is no other. Or Deuteronomy 4.39 says, Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. So the existence of one God was taught in a number of verses. So the primary emphasis of Deuteronomy 6.4 is not that there's one God. The primary emphasis of Deuteronomy 6.4, as I said early on, was relationship. God God knows there's only one God. He wants to be our only God. He doesn't want to share us with anybody else, and he doesn't want us thinking that we can share him with other gods. God, Yahweh, is our God, Yahweh alone. And that's that's really true. And see, this this then becomes really important when we try to see how the whole first commandment fits together. And in fact, we're going to start to cover that now as we move into the second section of this teaching. Now that we understand that the Shema is, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone, then let's talk about what that Shema is communicating to us. What is that Shema saying? Because it really is the heart of God toward us. And it is the heartbeat of God's word toward Israel. It was part of, as Christ said, the first commandment, the greatest commandment. So now as we start talking about what what is the Shema saying? What is the Shema telling us? What are we supposed to learn from the Shema? First and foremost is that the Shema is about relationship. God wants to be in an intimate relationship with us, a one-on-one relationship with us. He doesn't want to be just part of who or what we worship. He wants to be the he wants to be the one and only God in our life. And that's really, really important. Now, the Hebrew, the Hebrew wording of the Shema is very dense. It only has six words. And, and because of that and the way the words are put together, it has a number of, of secondary meanings and lesser meanings built into it, uh, which makes the full meaning of the Hebrew difficult to capture in English, Greek, or any other language. Basically, what we have to do in English is just a a primary translation and then understand there are other ranges of meaning. But the Shema, as I said, it's only six words, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And it, this is called the Shema because these six words start with Shema Israel, hear, O Israel. So then that's how it got to be called the Shema. <laughs> and like I said, this is the, the very centerpiece of, of Jewish worship. It is spoken uh, in every Jewish prayer service. And as we saw, Christ said it was part of, I mean, when Christ, when that guy said, what's the first and great commandment, you know, Christ quoted in Mark 12, 29, he quoted the Shema. So this is part of the first and great great commandment. Now, why would that be? Again, what is the Shema saying? Why did Christ 
make the Shema part of the first and great commandment? Why couldn't he just say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Now, Matthew, in fact, cuts the Shema off of the quotation. Matthew is handling a different emphasis, so it leaves the Shema off. But what Christ actually said is preserved completely in the book of Mark. And so we understand. So what is it that Jesus saw in this Shema that when the Pharisee asked him, what is the first commandment that Jesus started out and said, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone, and we should worship him with, or we are to worship him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And one thing it shows is that we don't get to choose who God is. <laughs> Yahweh alone is God. <laughs> you know, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. You know, there's a, a there's a lot of quote gods out there. You know, there's a lot, you know, my goodness, I think about the things that people set up in their life as as God or as a a god or maybe as God's helper, <laughs> if you will. You know, gee, I, I pray to God, but I, I need this statue in my yard to, you know, help protect me, or I need this. Um, you, you get the idea, you know, that that we don't get to choose who God is. Yahweh alone is God, and we need to make him our God. Another thing it does is it shows us that we need to know who God is. You see, what does the Shema say? Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is our God. And Yahweh alone. And that becomes really important because, okay, there is a God. His name is Yahweh. And we need to know who he is. If we don't know who God is, or if we misidentify him, then when it says love God, you know, we're, we're going to end up loving the wrong thing. <laughs> and that's, that's unfortunate, but that's exactly what's going on here. You know, and I, I think about the number of people that really have a problem with God. You know, there's there's something about God they don't like or it doesn't work. For some reason, they they, they have a problem with God and uh, many people abandon God. Maybe not many, but some people abandon God and become agnostics or become atheists or begin to vote, be devotees to other religions. And one of the questions that I've learned to ask when somebody tells me is I don't believe in God is I've learned to ask Tell me about the God you don't believe in. See, I'm, I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm maturing in my faith. Because, I, you know, it used to be that if somebody said, I don't believe in God, I'd start immediately to tell him about God. But the problem with that is I don't know who or what he thinks God is. So if somebody comes and says, I don't believe in God or I don't believe in your God, fine, okay, I'm, I'll listen. Tell me about the God you don't believe in. Then somebody might say, well, you know, I don't, I don't believe in, in a God that, that tortures people in, in hell forever and ever and ever. Hmm, okay, you know, I don't believe in that God either. And I don't believe the Bible says that. But, you know, and, and we can get on the same page, but, but I've got a, you know, here's a guy who thinks he's not believing in God, but he doesn't know who God is, so he's not believing in something that doesn't even exist. Well, yeah, it's nice to believe. It's nice to not believe in something that doesn't exist. What we want to do is we want to believe in the God who exists. We want to get it right. And that's part of Shema. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. We've got to know who he is or we're going to be we're going to be trying to love the wrong thing. And I have seen that happen among Christianity. Furthermore, Yahweh is to be our God. It's not just enough. I mean, here's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. It's, it's not just enough to know that Yahweh is God or a God or he's out there. You know, or, yeah, there's, there's Yahweh. Yeah, he's probably God. Doesn't mean anything to me. I don't need him. You know, that kind of attitude. Yahweh is to be our God. You know, Paul wrote, quote, to us. 
There is one God, the Father. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Absolutely. You know, and, and as I said before, just a, a little bit ago, you know, the world is full of gods, idols, divas, sources of spiritual power, yogi, who, who, and gosh, there's gazillions of them. <laughs> but Yahweh, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be our God. You know, maybe the people of the world have other gods, but the people of God are to have Yahweh alone as their God. And that's, that's very much what the Shema is about. God, God doesn't want to share you with, with other gods, absolutely. By the way, and this is what I, was, I said I'd, I'd bring up a little, a little while ago, it's because God alone is God that we can love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Look, if you've got three gods or you've got five gods or you've got ten gods or like some of the religions where you have thousands of gods, you can't love one with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Because by, by nature, if you've got ten gods, each one of those gods is going to get a different piece of your heart, your love, your worship. Now, you might have, like, if you were a Roman, let's say you were a Roman soldier, and, and you worshiped the Roman pantheon, let's say that, you know, in your more limited understanding, let's, let's say you just had, like, a few dozen gods, but you would have one primary god. You know, and let's say if you're a Roman soldier, well, that's going to be Mars, the god of war. And so you've got all these gods that you kind of offer to, sacrifice to, show up at their special days and stuff. But you've got your one god that you love the most. Well, God, I'm sorry. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be the god you love the most. He wants all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the only way you can do that is if you have only one god. Absolutely. If we had more than one God, our loyalties would be divided. And, you know, honestly, just to speak very honestly and candidly, I see this happen regularly when I talk to Trinitarians. For example, according to Trini the, the doctrine of the Trinity, there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You go to, to churches or listen to Christian TV on Sunday morning, there are songs to and about Jesus. There are songs to and about God the Father. There are very, very few songs to the Holy Spirit. Uh, you go to various churches, people pray to God. People pray to Jesus Christ. I can honestly say I can't even remember at this time in my life. It may have happened and I may have forgotten it. But as I'm sitting here recording this recording, I can't remember a single time in all of my years in Christianity that I heard somebody pray a prayer to the Holy Spirit. And the poor Holy Spirit, you know, he doesn't get to help write the epistles. You know, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oops, the Holy Spirit doesn't get to help out. Why not? And, and then in the final, the book of Revelation, when there's the throne of God, it's the Father in Christ sitting on the throne. The Holy Spirit isn't even mentioned as getting a place on the throne. So, you see, you, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm going to say it's really impossible to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength if you have more than one God's. And so that's why did Jesus Christ include the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, in getting to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because you've got to get that there's only one God. And if you've got more than one God, you're not going to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can't do it. You're going to have to divide your loyalties. And, and God doesn't want that. And of course, the Jews understood that. And that's why they so fiercely fought polytheism uh, throughout their history. Uh, by the way, I mentioned that the Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which Christ called the first commandment, it does fit with the first one of the Ten Commandments. Because what was the first commandment? Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 and verse 3, 
I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must not have any other gods besides me. So the first commandment, when, when God says, you know, Yahweh is your God, Yahweh alone, it's, it's very much supported by the first of the Ten Commandments. You must not have any other gods besides me. By the way, that translation gets blurred somewhat in a, in a, number, in a number of the versions uh, which translate the, the, the second part, verse 3, as uh, you shall have no other gods before me. I get that that is perhaps a literal translation of the Hebrew, but sometimes when you bring one language into another, you 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 lose clarity because you lose the cultural context. You see, uh, when when one person was before another in the biblical vocabulary, like when Abraham stood before Yahweh, it's to be in the presence of. When someone would stand before the king, he stood in the presence of the king. So what God is actually saying is, when he says, you know, you shall have no other gods before me, what God is saying is, here's the deal. I'm going to sit on my throne and I'm going to look around. And I don't want to see any other gods, period. You know, if you've got some little other god back there in the distance, I don't want, they shouldn't be there. When I look around, there's no other gods, period. I'm the only god. And that's what he meant when he said, you know, that you, uh, I'm, I'm your God. You must not have any other gods besides me or some of the ver- modern versions say, but me, which is okay. When you say before me in English, it can have the meaning of in front of me, like we're standing in a line and I say, you're before me. It doesn't mean I'm not there. It just means you're first. And so what can be misunderstood is you will have no other gods before me, meaning, yeah, you can have other gods, but I want to be your top god. And that is absolutely not what the first thing, first commandment of the 10 is saying, Exodus 22 and 3. It's, it's absolutely not saying that God's okay if you have other gods, as long as he's your number one god. What it is saying is, I'm going to sit on my throne and look around, and I better not be seeing any other gods around here, because I'm God, I'm your God, and I'm the only God. And that's the understanding of the first and great commandment of out of the ten that we need to understand. So that's that's really important stuff. Now, as I said just a little bit ago when I was talking about the density of the Hebrew text, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad, that, that those six words are so dense, and so there's there's other meanings there that it's very hard, like when you translate it into English, you've got to pick a meaning, and then that becomes the meaning in the English version. It doesn't mean that there aren't other meanings that are represented in the Hebrew. And one of the meanings of, of Echad, besides being alone or one, is it means unique. And I, I get a kick out of this because, <laughs> you know, in the communication back and forth between male and female, you know, there's a lot of talk about how special people are and stuff like that. And in the Song of Six, uh, in the Song of Solomon, in uh, chapter six, verse nine, and here the 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 lover, ostensibly the king, is talking to his queen, the the beloved, and he says in verse uh, eight, there are sixty queens. 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one is unique. So here's this king and he said, well, you know, yeah, I've got 60 uh, queens and I've got 80 concubines and, yeah, and there's some other women around here too, but but you're really unique. And I'm thinking to myself how my wife would not be real happy with that. And, and my thinking, calling her unique, which she would probably think and rightfully so that that was disingenuous. But it is important 
that we understand that unique is one of the meanings of of echad, you know, so that so that reverberating along with the major emphasis that you know Yahweh alone is our God, is an is this statement that or this understanding that Yahweh is unique and He really is unique. I mean, He is God. <laughs> There's only one God. He created lords and powers and authorities and dominions and and various angelic orders like. We have the archangels, the leading angels, you know, but God is unique. He is the one and only God. He's the most high God, and he has unique characteristics that nobody else has. Also, of course, we have the, the common meaning of Akkad, which is one, that there is just one God. And, you know, when we think about that, see, it, it, it's not saying there's not a compound unity but what it is saying is that there was only one God. And a little bit back, I said, we have to know who that God is. And why is it so important to know there's one God, just one God? And we have to know him because in the cultures of the ancient world, to some degree, even frankly, today, uh, but in the cultures of the ancient world, there would there were, as you know, there were pantheons of hundreds and sometimes even thousands of gods. And so it was pretty common that there would be a god that would be known by different names in different places, or there would be several gods known by the same name. Um, and, and sometimes it would be the same, supposedly the same god, but the characteristics and the worship would change completely dramatically. Like, for example, the Artemis, who's called Diana in the book of Acts, you know, great as Diana of the Ephesians in the King James Version, Artemis and some of the others, was in name the same goddess as Artemis that you would find in Greece or Diana that you might find in Rome. But the Diana or Artemis that was worshipped in Ephesus was a totally different creature. Same name, but but worshipped totally differently. And I mean, that happened all over the place. If you study the gods of the ancient world, some of them that were worshipped completely differently and assigned different characteristics in different places, Astarte, Baal, Sibyl, El, Isis, Artemis, we talked about her, Leviathan, Lilith, Tammuz, the list goes on and on. So when he says, you know, there, that Yahweh is one, Yahweh is the same, whether you're in Israel, remember, <laughs> here's Jonah, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to get on a boat and I'm going to run away from Yahweh. Well, it's not going to do any good because he doesn't change. <laughs> he's the same all over the whole universe. He's got the same name and he's the same God and he does the same thing and he's got the same characteristics. And that, that needs to be brought out and understood by the Jews that if they're captured and, 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 and carried captured to Babylon, their God in Babylon is the same as he is in Israel. If when the Romans came in, if they're captured and taken as slaves and scattered around the Roman Empire, their God is the same no matter where they go. And, and that's a kind of a, a sub-theme and a reverberation in the understanding of the Shema. So lots of great stuff. So let's talk about the practical application of the Shema to you and me. How, how do we bring this into our life? Well, one, obviously, and this is kind of a summary because we've, we've already talked about a lot of this stuff. But practical application, look, Yahweh is to be my and your, our one and only God. We don't have any gods besides him, and he doesn't need any help. And, you know, the adversary, it's, it's amazing. You know, the adversary gets rid of idols. And so, at least, you know, among most Christians, he gets rid of idols. And so what does he do? Well, he slips idols in, but they're in the form of Lucky objects, you know, used to be rabbit's feet. Now you don't see them around anymore. But, you know, lucky objects, talismans, amulets, things that ward off evil, things that summon spiritual help, things that help out God. God, <laughs> it's crazy to even say it. God doesn't, not only does he not need any help, he doesn't want any help. He wants to be your one and only God. 
And then what the devil does is he'll take people that maybe they're a rung up. You know, they've they got God is their only God, and by golly, they don't have any lucky objects. They don't have any amulets or anything like that. But then the devil slips in superstition. Oh well, if I say something and I really I'm, I don't want to I don't want it to go wrong, I knock on wood. Yeah, it's like. God doesn't need any help from your desk or your table or whatever it is you're knocking on. God is to be your only God. Quit summoning invisible help. (laughs) We got to get rid of all those superstitions. You know, God wants to be our one and only God, and he wants to be our God, and he wants a relationship with us. And that is really important to him. And then, of course, obviously, we are to love God. What do we what do we learn from the, the Shema? We learn because there is only one God. We can unabashedly focus all of our love on him, and we can love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. We don't divide up our love for God with any other thing, person, object, whatever. He gets special love for being God. Absolutely. And we don't separate that up or d- divide up our love. And and that is, is really important. And we learn that. Thankfully, you know, God, <laughs> poor God, he's put up with an awful lot from human beings, you know, the human beings that reject him, the human beings that have other gods, the human beings that don't know him. But, but God has a very bright future, and we see that in the book of Revelation. We see it in some of the Old Testament prophets. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9 says, uh, it uses the word ekad, by the way, and it speaks of the future, saying that Yahweh will be king over the whole earth. And if you look at Zechariah 14, 9, the last phrase of Zechariah 14, 9 uh, says that in that day, Yahweh will be one, Echad, and his name one, meaning Yahweh will be alone and his name alone. Finally, <laughs> after Christ conquers the earth and Christ rules, Yahweh, is his. He, he will be alone. There won't be all these other idol gods and going around in Christ's kingdom, you know, and his name alone. He alone will be called God. And that is is really powerful. And I and I love what some of the versions, you know, if you read what the prophets say about that time period, Isaiah chapter two, verse twenty, this is I'm reading Holman Christian Standard Bible. On that day, people will throw their silver and gold idols, which they made to worship, to the moles and the bats. <laughs> you know, you want to you wanna know what you'll think of your idols made of silver and gold, and those are silver and gold. You know, you just, just take them all, throw them to the moles and the bats, down in the ground and in caves, and just get rid of it. Exactly. Verse uh, Zechariah 13, 2. And on that day, says Yahweh of heaven's armies, I will erase idol worship throughout the land, so that even the names of the idols will be forgotten. So God's had a rough road of things because people have not understood who he is and they have not held him firmly and unequivocally as their God. But, but there is coming a time when God will be God alone. His name will be name alone. Uh, and all of the, the idols, even their names, will be forgotten. And that's, that's in God's future and in our future. Right now, what can we do? We can recognize there is one God. His God is God and God alone, and we can worship him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God bless you.